0: It's the fifth Sunday of Lent, and in the traditional Roman calendar, it's First Passion Sunday. It is also the 25th of March in the year of our salvation, 2007, and that makes it the Feast of the Annunciation, even though we will celebrate that great feast tomorrow on the 26th by reason of the Lenten Sunday. And this is a podcast from Father Z. Coming back as our guest today, Pope Leo the Great, who died in 461, and uh, we're going to have an excerpt from one of his great letters, one of his most important documents, and something that changed uh, the history of the world. Also, I'll make some comments about Lent and what it, the symbolism of Lent and what happens in the liturgy, and I'll talk about the Tridentine Mass and uh, lots of other things, too. Here we go. In the second reading for the Liturgy of the Hours for the Feast of the Annunciation, we have an excerpt from letter 28 of Pope Leo the Great who died in 461. And this letter was of vast importance for the history of the church and what we believe as Christians about Christ and about how we are saved. And it can help, uh, if we're going to read this, to place it in its historic context. We can get more out of it that way. But remember that this uh, period of the church's history is incredibly complicated. So let's you know cut right down to the very bare essentials so we can contextualize this letter. Now, uh, as... Uh, the church grew and developed over the centuries. Um, People began to think, uh, kind of reflect on our our salvation, how we are saved. And they started to duke it out uh, really bitterly over how to describe the person of Christ. Because they know that our salvation is through him. So in describing our salvation, they had to talk about Christ too. Now, some in the stream of theologians and theology centering around Antioch uh, they tried to defend the distinction between Christ's divinity and Christ's human nature to such a degree that they effectively split Christ into two persons. And the result was Nestorianism and, and other heresies in, in that direction. Now, others, uh, loosely grouped uh, as the Alexandrian strain of theology, uh, stressed the unity of the person of Christ to such a degree that they virtually merged the two natures together, the divinity of Christ absorbing his humanity, as it were. And the problem with both of these positions is that if Christ is not a true man with a real and whole human nature, then his passion and death would be only a kind of a show, and would only seem to be what it really had to be in order for us to be saved. And also, if these natures that he has are not in unity with each other, well then, you know, what possible effect could the one nature, could, you know, Christ's divinity have with his human nature, you see? So these two extremes basically made it impossible to describe how we are saved. And uh, the different parties eventually um, came made an appeal to Pope Leo, the bishop of Rome, to help resolve the question. And so in 449, Leo the Great wrote several letters uh, to confirm the decisions of the Council of Ephesus, which had been held in 431, condemning Nestorianism, which uh, was that heresy that emphasized Christ's two natures so much as to split Christ in two. And one of uh, Pope Leo's letters uh, was written to Flavian, who was the patriarch at uh, Constantinople. And this letter is of huge importance in the history of the world, basically. In this letter, which we call letter 28 ad flavianum, uh, is sometimes it's called the dogmatic epistle, uh, Leo gives a crystal clear analysis of the Catholic doctrine of Christ's two natures in one divine person. And Leo's letter was later accepted by the Council of Chalcedon, which was held in 451, which uh, meant to discuss you know, Christ's two natures and confirm two natures in one divine person. And the, the letter itself was looked at as having almost the authority of a symbol, which is the technical term for a creed. So uh, here is a section of Pope Leo's letter to Flavian. It's the dogmatic epistle, and it's the perfect choice for the Feast of the Annunciation today, because the Annunciation reveres that instant in history when the second person took our human nature into a bond with his divinity. And Leo has a spellbinding ability to balance Concepts one against the other and use elegant, elegant word order to emphasize parallels and contrasts between these concepts. And again and again, he makes comparisons. Uh, between Christ considered in his divinity and Christ from the point of view of his humanity, while all the time maintaining the unity between them. And so Leo defends Christ's two natures, each being perfect, losing nothing in their union with each other, and keeping them unconfused with each other. And so, well, here are two paragraphs of Pope Leo's letter to Flavian, written in 449. This is a letter that changed the world forever. De Christo be Sancti Leonis Mani Pave. Suscepta est a Majestate Humilitas, a Virtute Infirmitas, ab Eternitate Mortalitas. Et ad resolvendum conditionis nostrae debitum, natura inviolabilis nature est unita possibili ut cum nostris remedis congruabit. Unus atque idem mediator Dei et hominum, homo Iesus Christus, et mori poset ex uno, et mori non poset ex altero. In integra ergo veri hominis perfectaque natura verus natus est Deus, totus in suis, totus in nostris. Nostra autem digimus, que in nobis ab initio Creator condidit, et quae reparanda sucepit. Nam ila quae deceptor intudit, et homo deceptus admisit, nullum habuerum din salvatore vestigium. Nec quia communionem humanarum subiit infirmitatum, iriō nostrorum fuit particeps delictorum. As sumpsit formam servi sine sorde pecati. Humana augens, divina non minuens, quia ex inanitio illa, qua se invisibilis visibilem prebuit, et creator ac dominus omnium rerum unus voluit esse mortalium, inclinatio fuit miseria. Lulliness is assured by majesty, weakness by power, mortality by eternity. To pay the debt of our sinful state, a nature that was incapable of suffering was joined to one that could suffer. Thus, in keeping with the healing that we needed, one and the same mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, was able to die in one nature and unable to die in the other. He who is true God was therefore born in the complete and perfect nature of a true man, whole in his own nature, whole in ours. By our nature we mean what the Creator had fashioned in us from the beginning and took to Himself in order to restore it. For in the Saviour there was no trace of what the deceiver introduced and man being misled allowed to enter. It does not follow that because he submitted to sharing in our human weakness, he therefore shared in our sins. He took the nature of a servant without stain of sin, enlarging our humanity without diminishing his divinity. He emptied himself. Though invisible, he made himself visible. Though creator and lord of all things, he chose to be one of us mortal men. Yet this was the condescension of compassion, not the loss of omnipotence. So he who in the nature of God had created man, became in the nature of a servant man himself. Thus the Son of God enters this lowly world. He comes down from the throne of heaven, yet does not separate himself from the Father's glory. He is born in a new condition, by a new birth. He was born in a new condition, for, invisible in his own nature, he became visible in ours. Beyond our grasp, he chose to come within our grasp. Existing before time began, he began to exist at a moment in time. Lord of the universe, he hid his infinite glory and took the nature of a servant. Incapable of suffering as God, he did not refuse to be a man capable of suffering. Immortal, he chose to be subject to the laws of death. He who is true God is also true man. There is no falsehood in this unity as long as the lowliness of man and the preeminence of God coexist in mutual relationship. As God does not change by his condescension, so man is not swallowed up by being exalted. Each nature exercises its own activity in communion with the other. The Word does what is proper to the Word, the flesh fulfills what is proper to the flesh. One nature is resplendent with miracles, the other falls victim to injuries. As the word does not lose equality with the Father's glory, so the flesh does not leave behind the nature of our race. One and the same person, this must be said over and over again, is truly the Son of God and truly the Son of Man. He is God in virtue of the fact that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He is man in virtue of the fact that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Incomprehensibilis, voluit comprehendi. Ante tempora esse cepit extempore. Universitatis dominus servilem formam, obumbrata maestati sue immensitate, sucedit. Impassibilis Deus. Non deinitus est homo esse passibilis et immortalis mortis legibus subiacere. Qui enim verus est Deus, idem verus est homo, et nulum est in hac unitate mendacium, dum invicem sunt, et humilitas hominis et altitudo deitatis. Sic ut enim Deus non mutatur miseratione. Ita homo non consumitur dignitate. Agit enim utraque forma, cum alterius comunione, cod proprium est, verbo scilic operante quod verbi est, et carne exequente quod carnis est. Unumorum coruscat miracudis, aliud succumbit injuris. Et sicut verbum ab equalitate paterni gloriae non recedit, ita caro naturam nostri generis non relinquit. Unus enim idemque est, quod sepe dicendum est, vere filii Deus, et vere hominis filius. Deus per id cod, in principio eret verbum, et verbum erat apud Deum, et Deus erat verbum. Homo perid cod verbum caro factum est, et habitavit in nobis. This was an excerpt from letter 28 of Pope Leo the Great, written in 449 to help resolve problems of the Christological controversies in the 5th century. It's a magnificent letter with glorious, beautiful Latin, and this was one of those letters that literally changed the history of the world. The world would never be the same after Leo de L- wrote and, and sent this letter off. You notice there at the very end of the letter, how Leo says uh, he em- he's emphasizing that one and the same person is not two persons, is truly son of God and truly son of man. You know, he's consubstantial with the father, and he's also consubstantial with his mother, and so he is a, a perfect humanity and a perfect divinity. But here's the thing: he says this must be said over and over again. It has to be repeated in every age and every time. We just have to keep talking about this reality of Christ in two natures with one divine person. You see, years and years ago when I was in seminary, we had, a, a, shall we say, a, a somewhat less than orthodox seminary, but we were coming out of class one day, a Christology class, second year of seminary, and uh, one, guy, I heard one guy turn to the other and say, "You know that that whole two natures and two, two natures thing is sort of an interesting idea." <laughs> well, you, the problem with this is that number one, this guy's in major seminary, and he'd never heard this before. And number two, if it's just an interesting idea then he doesn't have a solid foundation for understanding how we came to be saved. Because if we don't know who Jesus Christ is, then we don't understand our own salvation. And just lately, the Congregation for Doctrine of the Faith had to issue a notification about the works of a Latin American Jesuit by the name of John Sobrino, in which This Jesuit, this liberation theologian, makes all sorts of mistakes about the person of Christ, about the nature of Christ, who Christ is. And this is going on all the time in these theologians that the Holy See has to discipline or warn people about. They're constantly making mistakes about who Jesus Christ is. There was another thing about the very end there that I found uh, really quite moving is this beautiful way that he that that pope leo uses the very first part of the gospel of john when he says he is god in fact uh, because because in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god but he's man in virtue of the fact that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us well This morning I walked over to one of the churches here in Rome where the Tridentine Mass is celebrated, and there at the end of this very beautiful Mass, uh, today is a a Sunday, and it's of course First Passion Sunday in the older traditional calendar, and at the end of Mass we hear the Gospel of John, the very first part uh, of the Gospel of John read. It's read after every Mass, and this uh, struck me profoundly because I had read this today and then here in the liturgical setting is this reminder of the reality of God being, Christ being God because the he, in the beginning was the word and Christ is man because the word is made flesh and dwelt among us and at that moment in, in reading the creed everyone genuflects everyone bends the knee. And it used to be so in the creed, too, that uh, uh, every Sunday, that everyone at the same time would genuflect. Well, now with the Novus Ordo, we only genuflect at that part of the creed uh, in two different days of the year. One of them is on Christmas Day, and the other one is today, uh, exactly nine months before Christmas, on the Feast of the Annunciation. But all of us should keep constantly in mind that we are saved because Christ had two natures, his divine nature and a perfect human nature, whole and unspoiled, in unity with his divinity, but in such a way that the two natures are unconfused. As I mentioned earlier, I went to a little church today where the Tridentine Mass is celebrated in Rome. It's the church called San Gregorio dei Muratori, and it's staffed by the priests of the Fraternity of St. Peter. It's a little tiny place, but it was jammed today for First Passion Sunday, as it is in the Preconciliar calendar, the traditional Roman calendar. And I went over there today... Uh, especially because I wanted to see uh, the things draped in purple. This is the day when we do that, uh, from now until until Easter, and it's really a, a good reminder about these what the what these decorations, well, all of our liturgical choices mean for us. You see, recently the Holy Father, in his exhortation Sacramentum Caritatis, explained how we are our rites. Uh, There's a mysterious unity between the church's sacred rites and the Christian people. Who we are is shaped by how we pray and and vice versa. So um, when Lent began, we set aside um, all our decorations and instrumental music and the Gloria and uh, the Alleluia, and we began to fast. In fact, we began to die uh, to our senses our senses of sight and hearing are being deprived all during lent we dress in penitential purple and take things away and from passion sunday as today, day um, first passion sunday statues and images are draped in purple so they are hidden from our eyes you see the church is slowly but surely whittling things away we're dying and in the older Mass, also from today, the Eudica May was not recited uh, during the prayers uh, at the foot of the altar. Uh, the Gloria Patri was not said after the introit. And uh, the, as we entered into this deeper fast, then you remember on Holy Thursday, you know, then we get rid of things like bells in favor of these harsh wooden clackers. And on Good Friday, the church doesn't even have Mass. You see, we can receive communion, but there's no mass. The church is dying, and the priest even removes his shoes uh, to venerate the crucifix. You see, we're losing things, and at the vigil mass, we are absolutely dead before the thing begins. We are even deprived of light itself. It's pitch dark, and it's silent, and then there's the mysterious moment when We burst back into life again, and the light is kindled, the fire is kindled, and it ripples through the church from candle to candle. And we have the magnificent uh, rebirth of the church liturgically at the Vigil Mass of Easter. Remember, we are our rites, and how we pray demonstrates also to other people what it is that we believe many many years ago the first time i ever walked into a catholic church i'd never been in a catholic church in my life and i was uh, so impressed it was at saint agnes church in saint paul in minnesota where they have beautiful beautiful liturgy and beautiful music and uh, everything done with real love and real care and i was so overwhelmed by this experience that i asked myself who are these people what do they believe that they would do this every week And, in fact, I had hit exactly the right question. What we believe influences the way we pray. But, remember, what we pray, how we pray, also influences how we believe. And so our liturgical traditions are so important to us. Let us not ever underestimate the power of these liturgical symbols to shape our own faith, we who are already practicing, but also to draw others in, and so that they can come to a greater appreciation of the truth of Holy Mother Church and the love of God, especially through her liturgy. A bit today, so I think I'll wrap it up there. Come and visit the blog. What does the prayer really say? That's wdtprs.com, Whiskey Delta Tango Papa Romeo Sierra.com. You can leave comments and do a lot of reading. I hope your Lenten preparation continues to be very fruitful. God bless you and yours, and come back again soon from Rome. This is Father Z signing off.